Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new criminal case. On April of 20th, 1999, in Littleton in Colorado, two teenagers, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, opened fire on their fellow students at Columbine High School during lunch break. The two boys, equipped and armed with a veritable arsenal of weapons, drew fire for around 50 minutes nonstop, not sparing any student, teacher, or administrative staff. A terrible carnage which resulted in 13 dead and 24 seriously injured before the madness ended with the suicide of the two friends. Since the Columbine Massacre has remained forever engraved in the collective memory as one of the worst carnage ever perpetrated in an American educational establishment. This raises several questions. Why did Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, two teenagers who were cultured, intelligent, trouble-free, relatively good students, and from a wealthy background with no problems, commit such a crime? What was the element that triggered this murderous madness? which was skillfully studied, orchestrated, and then planned for several months, hour by hour, minute by minute. To know this, I invite you to follow me into this complex story, which concluded with an unprecedented disaster and which points out one of the most sensitive and topical subjects in the United States. On one hand, the mental health of teenagers who are perpetually exposed to virtual violence, and on the other, the laws of possession of weapons written in the legislation which every American, young or not, claims as their full-fledged citizen's right. The city of Denver in the state of Colorado is dominated by the majestic chain of the Rockies, the celebrated and imposing Rockies Mountain and snow-capped peaks. In the residential area of Littleton, a white suburb in the south of the city, live families of the wealthy middle class, ex-American army pilots, advocates, conference speakers, university professors, and doctors. The majority of the houses have their own swimming pool, golf courses, tennis courts, and gardens with manicured lawns. Despite the social success of most of the population, the did-you-see-me and the apparent luxury of Miami or Beverly Hills were not approved in Denver, which claims to have a past in the countryside, where a certain Lutheran simplicity is advocated, whether in way of dressing or the make of car. The whole idea is to make a good living without falling into the cliché of the perfect upper class. In Littleton, the cordiality of neighbors and respect for the privacy of others is the key to live peacefully. 
coming to the home of Clebolds, a very proper and sober family consisting of parents, Thomas and Sue, an engineer and a caregiver for disabled children respectively, and their two sons, Dylan and Byron. The Clebolds are originally from Lakewood, where their two sons were born, and moved to Littleton only a few years ago. The family lived in comfort and had three houses together, one for the parents and two for the boys. Their lovely property, one of the largest in Littleton, also had a swimming pool, a private tennis court, and was surrounded by a large railing with a state-of-the-art security system. Despite this material comfort, the Clebolds were known for being simple and down-to-earth people who advocate values such as honesty and seriousness as the only keys to success in life. Precepts they did not fail to inculcate in their children, whom they educated the hard way, the old-fashioned way, modest and undemonstrative. Sue and Thomas were not very close to their children from an emotional point of view, although there had never been any verbal or physical violence in their home. Little Dylan, born two years after his older brother, was a shy and lonely child. He attended Normandy Elementary School for two years, a very bright child. He was accepted into the renowned Challenging High Intellectual Potential Students, or CHIPS for short, a program for gifted children with higher-than-average IQs. It was there he met and became acquainted with the man who would become his closest friend, Brooks Brown. Brooks' parents also lived in Littleton, so it was only natural that their son began to spend more time with Dylan, even after school. Not much into sports, the two read adventure books together and watched sci-fi movies like E.T. or Jurassic Park. It was around this time that a new student made an entrance. His name was Eric Harris. His parents had only recently been settled in Colorado. After many years of successive moves between New York and Kansas, in accordance with his father, Wayne Harris Sr.'s posting, who is a pilot with the American Air Force, Eric Harris was an unattached, lonely child with few friends. His parents, who were busy with their respective professions, were often absent. Most of the time, he was on his own. In 1993, he returned to college, where he met Dylan Klebold for the first time. Their friendship was consolidated from this pivotal period of early adolescence. When different characters are forged, their meeting could be likened to the union of two souls in secret and solitude. Dylan even began to neglect Brooks Brown and spent more time with the boy who seemed to read his thoughts. In 1996, at the age of 15 years, an inseparable Eric and Dylan entered Columbine High School together. Brooks Brown was also in the same class as them. Having been living in their precocious bubble all their lives, the two former CHIPS graduates were literally thrusted into a totally different world. They quickly understood that in order to succeed in high school, they would have to build their muscles and abs at the expense of their brain power. Gone were the days of algebra, oceanography, history, and the study of the planets, and in come the days of biceps, oiled, well-built bodies. At Columbine, if the nerds are respected, the spokespeople are kings. You might be aware of how high schools are segmented in the United States, either through web series, films, or even during linguistic exchange programs. So, well, it's not a stereotype. It really happens like in fiction, with a few exceptions. In each high school, every teenager is called upon to join a group that most closely corresponds to their intellectual, cultural, or clothing inclinations. First, there are the nerds, those overachievers with magnifying glasses, hand-knitted blazers, often stickly with braces, most of the time gaudy and unattractive. Then there are the gods, 
neo-romantics, slightly out of place, with smoky eyes and black from head to toe. Then we have the goofy group of the cheerleaders, bouncing around the fields in skirts and waving their pom-poms loudly and enthusiastically cheering the teams. But above all, there are the jocks, a kind of biceps aristocracy, all handsome, rich, and enjoying the attention of females unanimously. All boys obviously want to look like this last category. Dylan and Eric didn't fit into any of these groups, and for good reason. They were neither excessively rich nor especially handsome. And above all, the most important thing, they didn't play any sport. This last condition was enough to decide the popularity or unpopularity of a boy at Columbine. Dylan had a complex of his height and thinness. He detested his big nose, his flat blonde hair, and his knife-edged face. Eric, on the other hand, had a complex about his numerous acne outbreaks, his unattractive appearance, and his limited charisma. To compensate for this unpopularity, which overwhelmed them every time they saw the football players in the corridors, the two friends plunged into studies and quickly ranked first in their class. They were soon hired as assistants by their computer science teacher, Richard Long, who noticed them in the batch. They worked passionately with him, even during lunch breaks and weekends. Richard Long was one of the few people who had held them in high esteem and he considered them to be by far the best and most intelligent students in his class. Dylan was a bright boy, able to express himself in a rich and sophisticated vocabulary. Eric was a nerd, but this quality far from being unanimously accepted only brought them trouble. Close up, shy, uncomfortable with themselves, the two teenagers scared everyone away. They were quickly called outcasts or outsiders and they were excluded from the football games, parties, the famous ones, or any other gathering that involved sports, wrestling, muscles, and testosterone. When someone threw a birthday party, Dylan and Eric were never invited. A trip to the mall or a high school boys and girls movie, they were not invited. Even French people like the gods couldn't tolerate them because they didn't consider their looks to be sophisticated or stylish enough, and this weighed on them more and more each day. Nevertheless, Dylan managed to make friends with a girl from his class, Devon Adams, a simple no-frills teenager, not blonde and pretty enough to be a cheerleader, but much better integrated into Columbine than he and his friend. Suspecting a raw sensitivity underneath this gifted shell, Devon spent time with him during lunch break, walking him out of school, ignoring the taunts as they passed. She even invited him to her birthday party. Despite her obvious friendship and affection for him, Dylan remained tight-lipped about all her attempts. Devon Adam recalls, Dylan was a very complex withdrawn with a very caustic and macabre sense of humor. He could laugh about disturbing things like suicide or crime. He was always uncomfortable when he was face-to-face -face with anyone, boy or girl. So to avoid talking about himself, he displayed his vast knowledge of music, cinema, literature, computers, his favorite fields. Besides, he was often morose, awkward, with very dark and gloomy ideas, which bothered everyone. In the privacy of his room, Klebold used a pen to draw his thoughts into an intimate journal. Drawing sketches of tanks, mutilated bodies, Kalashnikovs, exploding grenades, decapitated heads, coffins, all of which were enhanced by morbid comments. On the confessional side, the tone was just as bitter and tortured. I want so much to die, to put an end to all that mess. Life doesn't tell me anything. I wanted to be happy. I was never happy. To this added his frustration with the females whom he had always felt uncomfortable. 
Devon Adams, the only one who could tolerate him, had always remarked that Dylan had no official girlfriend, even if sometimes he might show interest in certain girls, but it always remained platonic and one-sided. However, he had once fallen madly in love with a girl from high school but didn't dare to approach her for the fear of being rejected. So, back home, he sadly scribbled lonely hearts in his diary, which are found drawn frantically on a dozen successive pages. This girl I thought was the love of my life. She doesn't even know I exist. Further on, he adds bitterly, I have no love life, no ambition, no friends, I'm nothing. Through Dylan, Devon Adams also got to know Eric Harris, but that relationship did not work. She sensed that he was moody, quiet, brooding and harboring an indescribable hatred. To top it all off, Eric hated her for interfering in his friendship with Dylan. The girl understands the toxicity of the situation, decided to withdraw, leaving the two boys to themselves. From then on, Clebold Harris pairing began to become increasingly isolated and radicalized. While Dylan sometimes leaned towards naive romanticism and fictional melodrama, as some of his diary entries revealed, Eric was much more cerebral and mechanical. However, equally shy and solitary, he also used the diary to regularly confide his unease and frustration. In nervous prose, he implicitly addressed the girls and boys in his high school, I'm mad at you for keeping me away from so many cool things. You had my phone number and everything, but no one wants a little weird-looking Eric at home. At Columbine, every day was a new ordeal for Dylan and Eric, facing the musclemen of the American football team who did not hesitate to intimidate them when they passed in the main alley. The latter, who had a greater advantage in terms of numbers and physical strength, pushed them, gave them violent slaps, called them pussies and retards, and made fun of their unattractive physique and unkempt look. The two boys took the brunt of it, but did not react. On the contrary, they just ignored, far too terrified to fight back. But deep down, they were seething, gritting their teeth and swallowing their self-esteem. At Columbine, the Great Hall was adorned with a proud display of showcases in which all the trophies won by the high school during the national football, basketball and baseball tournaments were displayed. Everything here extrudes sports and favoritism towards those who play these sports. In addition to being considered the most popular bunch at Columbine, the jocks used and abused their position to gain respect from all other students. The journals of Dylan and Eric are a reflection of the charge and threatening atmosphere. Dylan recounts, I envy the superficial existence of all these sports players. They have a very true life. Lots of girls running after them. Lucky bastards. The few people who sympathized with Dylan, including Devon Adams and Brooks Brown, were harassed for taking a stand with them. In this regard, Brooks Brown says, At Columbine High School, the older and more sporty kids had an advantage over the others. A lot of our teachers could see very clearly that Eric and Dylan were constantly being picked on. But nobody ever really lifted a finger to stop it. And there is more. One of the most striking incidents took place on one day in the school cafeteria at lunchtime, where everyone was present in full force. Some sporty people in a fit of saucy and obscene provocation, encircled Dylan and Eric and started throwing ketchup-coated female tampons at their faces to stimulate menstrual flow. The audience, instead of coming to the aid of the two unfortunate guys, joined with their assailants, laughing and shouting encouragement. Again, Dylan and Eric endured the ordeal without flinching and remained in their tomato-stained clothes all day until they returned home. 
They never told their parents about the fateful day, but they were still very shaken up to the point of having a stomach ache for the next few days. Disowned by their classmates, rejected by girls who had no interest in them, continually tortured and harassed, the two friends became more and more withdrawn. They created a bubble, a sort of parallel world, protected them from their detractors. Outside school, they spent most of their free time together. They both had an unbound hatred for the human race in general and despised what had become of American society and consumerism. They made fun of country music, the pride of Denver, and considered it to be the music of hicks and illiterate farmers. Instead, they listened to the German metal band KMFDM, which they considered to be much more classier and more in keeping with their image. In 1998, around the time the first interactive social networks came in, Eric had a blog, the forerunner of Facebook, where he posted his feelings like penning his own personal journal, but open to the public. On this site, he published passages from Mein Kampf and openly admitted his admiration for the SS and Nazism. He had several pseudonyms on the net, called himself Reb Dumer, Reb Dimini, or simply Reb. Dylan, on the other hand, called himself Wodka. Their common passion for computers led them to create several internet sites that were hosting video games such as Doom and Quake, the latest product of ID Software. But this pivotal year was coincided by the implementation of their plans to massacre targets at their school. They didn't talk about it overtly yet, not even to each other, but they knew that when one decides to do something, the other will follow. And so their toxic relationship continued. At Columbine, these two friends were chosen by their computer science teacher to take part in a cinema project where each group had to choose a specific team to produce a short film with any means at hand. Amateur cameras and proximate assembly. It didn't matter what the aesthetic result will be as long as there was an effort of creation and realization. Dylan and Eric were delighted to participate. Every late afternoon after school, they met in the basement of Eric's place to work on their project. It was entitled Hitman for Hire. Most of the scenes in Hitman for Hire were shot on the school grounds. While Dylan and Eric played the two main roles, a third student held the camera. In one of the videos, they can be seen walking gravely and slowly through the corridors dressed in long black coats and studded boots. Looking stern, their eyes hidden behind their thick dark glasses. In this small series of short films, Eric and Dylan gave free reign to their seclusion and always spoke in private, but in front of the camera. They shout, gesticulate, and insult and threaten an imaginary opponent. Their exterior scenes were shot in their little neighborhood, where they took long drives through the street listening to metal music. Sometimes in a sudden and indescribable rage, they attacked a bike, smashing it with a baseball bat until it smashed to bits, while bursting into laughter. Gradually, the two friends began to perfect their filming skills and started making short science fiction films. In one of these films, they play two vigilante policemen. We see them opening the boot of their car and taking plastic guns, which they hung around their necks. There were more and more talks of violence, extermination, and murder. The script, however, was a bit of a stretch. It's been three years since the atomic bomb exploded, not far from here. Some of our clothes have become radioactive. The government wants us to take care of these radioactive infested clothes. Towards the end of the sequence, Dylan spoke to the camera and gave advice on how to keep the gun steady, how to pull the trigger and shoot anything that moves. Eric says, yeah, this is getting harder and harder every day. It is going to be necessary to use weapons now. The weapons exactly. The two friends were obsessed, too much young to be able to acquire for themselves. 
they relied on fake guns, which they trained to shoot. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In his diary, Eric Knapp depicts himself as a triumphant warrior, shooting a Soviet war tank armed with Kalashnikov and a shield. He had boundless passion for the Klux Klux Klan and the Nazi emblem, which he drew all over the place the two friends having in common an openly racist and xenophobic demagogy. He was obsessed with genocide and wrote in bold capital letters, kill mankind, exterminate the human race. His former monologues were full of hurtful reproaches towards those who never wanted to invite him to their birthdays. It had given way to increasingly dark and open vindictive tirades. I'm full of hate. They better be careful with me if they want to save their skins. And he adds further, Soon I will have my revenge. All those bastards would have done better to leave me in peace. Six months later, the two boys filmed another short film in which they were dressed in long black leather coats that reached their heels. They appeared at the corner of an alleyway and came forward with a stern look on their faces. Like cowboys ready to draw at any moment. Sometimes they made their classmates participate in their cinematographic delirium, notably in the short film, Bullying, Harassment. The boy hired to take on the role of the victim is filmed whining and complaining while Dylan and Eric arrive and proposes their help. Afterwards, they pull out their fake guns and shoot the bad guy in question who collapses. The victim then comes over to show his gratitude. Towards the end of the sequence, the two would-be vigilantes went their rage on camera, threatening an unseen opponent. You miserable piece of trash. Stop bothering that poor kid. If you continue, I'll rip off your ugly head off and hang it on the school gates. Is that clear? These films, products of their deranged and tortured imaginations, were in reality nothing more than an outlet for their deep-seated feelings and a projection of their daily life at school. No one knew it yet, but it was a precursor of things to come. At the end of 1998 school year, Dylan was assigned by his computer science teacher to work on the sound for the play that was to be performed at the school's closing ceremony right after the graduation ceremony and award ceremony. During the rehearsal, Dylan was at ease, smiling and calm, talking normally with the actors and showing great commitment to the task in hand. His vigilante outfit, which he used to wear on the set of his short films, became his daily look and never left his sight. The long leather coat, the black aviator glasses, the cap pulled back and the black studded brodequins were now his only wardrobe. In Littleton, his mobster look did not go unnoticed, and when he accompanied his mother to the restaurant for lunch one day, 
the anxious glances he received from the neighboring tables rather than disturbing him actually reinforced his ego. For the first time in his life, he felt untouchable and powerful, just like the footballers in his high school. The shy and introvert geek was long gone. Make way for the new Dylan, who shows his virility as a real shield. At least, that is what he thought. While Dylan was now enjoying his new physical appearance, Eric became increasingly withdrawn and unpleasant with all the people. For him, all the boys and girls at his school were complete idiots and were not worth a damn. On his blog, he didn't hesitate to make fun of them and their limited mediocre intelligence quotient. He addressed everyone, but not one in particular. Aren't you all tired of using the same terms, the same trashy vocabulary? Open a book if only once and learn something useful, you bastards. To this, he added a title that he kept regularly updating and which he entitled as an open question. You know what I hate? And to each of his questions, he provided the answer himself. For example, he would say, You know what I hate? It's all those idiots incapable of citing a famous author. You know what I hate? It's those same idiots who can't put three different words together in a sentence. Open a dictionary. You will do good. The last sentence was almost premonitory. You know what I hate? It's when a bunch of idiots stand in the middle of my way and stop me from passing. Get out of my view. Or I promise you that I will kill you all like the dogs you are. Do you understand? The tone was clear. The tension was unbearable. Eric and Dylan became a real-time bomb, inflated to the max. The will to kill began to haunt them more and more day after day. To do what they had planned, they wanted to build up a war arsenal, developed with the means at hands. Together, they tried their hand at making homemade grenades, which they experimented in Eric's basement. The result of their attempts were posted on Eric's blog, with a list of the equipment used and photos. Some of their experiments were even applauded by users of the webpage who encouraged them to continue. With their knowledge of mathematics and chemistry, they also developed pipe bombs, which they made from glass fragments and carbon dioxide. But this was not enough. They needed real weapons and ammunitions to carry out their macabre plan. But no gun shop would sell them rifles or pistols, as they are minors. Dylan had an idea. In 1999, at Columbine, all the students of their second grade were awaiting for the long-awaited spring break, a time when all the young people from all over the country went down to Florida to sunbathe and party in order to forget the worries and stress of the last exams. The prom, another major event in the life of any self-respecting American high school student, was also on everyone's lips. Robin Anderson, an ex-childhood friend of Dylan, invited him to accompany her. She had recently broken up with her boyfriend and had neither the time nor the energy to search for a new lover to show off in the evening. Dylan didn't have the licks, but he'll do. He agreed to be her date with gratitude. That same evening, he took her aside to address a request to her. The girl was worried about an awkward declaration of love from him, but it was something quite different. She had to buy two shotguns, a .22 rifle in her name, and of course, he would give her the money. At first, Robin Anderson adamantly opposed, refusing to get involved in any bizarre story, but Dylan insisted, saying that it was for a fox hunt and that it wouldn't cost her anything since she was of age. And as a citizen of this country, she was in her right. And besides, one out of two households in the United States own one or more guns. It isn't the law, so she won't be doing anything illegal. Against all odds, the girl was persuaded, got the money, and went to the first gun shop in Denver the next day to make the purchases Dylan had asked for. A Savage 311D 12-gauge shotgun, another Savage Springfield 12-gauge shotgun, 
and a 22 long rifle. The receipt was made out to the buyer, Robin Anderson. Like a letter in the post, the arsenal was delivered the same day to Dylan, who rushed to tell Eric the two boys could not stand any longer. With their old plastic collapse, they now had their hands on real channels of polished metal, real triggers, and above all, real Winchester cartridges. Eric and Dylan spent the next few days shooting bullets in the forest outside Littleton. The first few shots were awkward, but they improved on their following ones. These training sessions were immortalized, as is everything they do. The possession of this arsenal gave them a pleasure and feeling of excessive power. After a few days, they were ready. On 19th April 1999, the two friends began to concretize the first steps of their criminal plan. They drew up some plans of their high school, focusing on the cafeteria, a place of incessant comings and goings and great student activity. This was the perfect place to place two sports bags containing two homemade bombs of their own making. The idea began to generate maximum human damage. They agreed on 11.15, a time of lunch break when the room is packed. The cafeteria can accommodate up to 200 students at the same time. Then Eric wrote down in a notebook the last errands to be done before J-Day, buying jerry cans of fuel, propane gas bottles, and ammunition. On the eve of the massacre, he noted in his journal that he would be prepared to spare the lives of 100 students, with all the others to die in the cruelest way possible. After that, he planned the timing for the next day, which started at first daylight. 5 a.m., get up. 6 a.m., find Dylan. 7 a.m., buy some propane and fuel at a service station. 9 a.m., loading the bags into the car. 10 a.m., depart for school. For his part, Dylan recorded what happened next in his journal. 10.30, park the car in the high school parking lot and take the bags out of the trunk. 11 a.m., place the bombs in the cafeteria. Machine gun will fire at will. Have a great time. It was April 20, 1999. The prom went well and many students had already packed their bags for spring break, which was to start the same weekend. Everyone was excited about the prospect of sunbathing in Miami, drinking cocktails and partying the night away with friends. Brooks Brown, who had to retake subjects, was watching this general jubilation with a heavy heart. His mother had just dropped him off at the school gate this morning and his class started at 11.30. He had time to get something from the cafeteria and then he was off to the classroom. But then Eric came towards him. He was wearing a t-shirt that says, Natural Selection. And his eyes hidden behind big sunglasses. He looked excited. Brooks understood. It's another one of those stupid films for Mr. Long's computer science project. Dylan shouldn't be too far away. In his usual black coat, Brooks, you need to go home. What are you talking about? But I have class in a few minutes. I'm telling you, you need to go home now. There is no class today. Brooks Brown was taken aback, but Eric almost pushed him out of the door, ordered him to leave then. Without looking back, he said goodbye. Dylan and Eric went to the cafeteria where they dropped off the two bags containing the propane bombs. It was the busiest time of the day. The canteen was full of people. No one noticed their presence. Their first task was completed. They went outside and waited for the bombs to explode. After a few minutes, nothing happened. The homemade bombs, not powerful enough, did not explode. Only one of the two burned and only halfway before going out completely. The two companions sensed that something was wrong but did not give up. The explosion that would generate the maximum amount of human damage was only plan A. So they moved on to plan B. Shoot everyone at point-blank range. On the school ground, many students were breaking bread. Among them, Richard Castaldo and his girlfriend Rachel Scott comfortably sat on the grass. Suddenly, the two young people see Eric running towards them. 
Rifle in hand, and the carnage began. Richard heard a burst of machine gun fire and screams from all sides. There was general panic. Everyone ran into hiding. The more experienced got down into their stomachs and hit their heads with two arms. But in the heat of the moment, caught off guard, many didn't see anything coming. Richard Castaldo was shot twice in the spine, while his girlfriend was shot through the heart. She died instantly. The carnage continued in the school, where hysterical screams, cries, and moans came from all sides. In the cafeteria, the panic was at its height, while some students fled, while others found refuge under the table. The headmaster, Frank DeAngelis, was alerted and came out of his office to see Dylan and Eric armed to the teeth. Heading upstairs to the computer room and library, Richard Long, the computer teacher, also saw the two former students from the window and was in total shock. He couldn't believe his eyes. Our teacher, Patty Nielsen, found herself face-to-face -face with the killers in the school hall. Seeing them dressed in their black leather coats and armed with their machine guns, she first thought it was a film shoot, as they used to do. Confident of her authority, she ordered them to stop. But it was no fun walking around the corridors like that, and they might scare some young students without meaning to. In response, Eric twisted his mouth into his worst smile before pointing his gun at her and shooting her in the right shoulder. Then they walked away without looking back. In shock, Patty Nielsen fell to the ground. In reality, the bullet had only pierced her skin without hurting her. But in a split second, she realized that this was no charade. This was all happening in real life. With a strength that came from panic, Patty Nielsen gathered her strength and went upstairs to hide in the library, where other students and administrative staff had taken refuge. The sliding door to the reading room could not be locked. So everyone hid under the computer tables, holding their breaths, praying that the killers wouldn't come this way. Patty Nielsen dialed the police, but just then a bullet shattered one of the windows in the room. Terrified, she dropped the phone and rushed to her hiding place. In the space of only 10 short minutes, Columbine had been transformed into a battlefield. No space was left untouched, either inside or outside. In one of the alleys, Eric and Dylan shot at Dave Sanders, a history teacher who had been working at Columbine for 20 years. The man didn't see them coming because his back was to them. They then went back to the cafeteria and threw grenades at 11.29, following closely the timing in their notebook. They went up to the library where Patty Nielsen and about 50 other people, students, secretaries, and librarians were hiding. Opening the door wide and shooting started again. Eric and Dylan shot in all directions laughing like hell, hurling racist insults, ducking under the tables to scare their classmates, and coldly killing one of them with a bullet in the head. For the two murderers, it was a moment of great euphoria. The cries and pleas only encouraged them more. Hiding behind a large armchair, Patty Nielsen heard them walking towards her. She caught their eye and felt that her end was near. She closed her eyes, wished it would all end quickly. And then she heard them walk away, as if they had changed their minds or found another hiding place. In the meantime, the departmental police, accompanied by several agents from the FBI, had arrived on the scene. They encircled the high school and ordered the two boys to surrender immediately. In their response, Dylan and Eric returned fire with machine guns. In just a few minutes alone, they had killed 10 people and seriously wounded 12 others in the library. Nearly 100 rounds of ammunition were used to perpetrate the carnage. Blood stains all over the carpet and bullet holes visible everywhere on the walls. In a fit of rage, the two murderers even broke tables and chairs before finally leaving the premises and going downstairs. They made one more trip to the cafeteria, which they vandalized and tried to set off the bombs that had been left there in vain. 
when they did not succeed, they threw a Molotov cocktail. The fire started instantly. The two boys fired a few more bullets into the air just to scare people. Suddenly, as if exhausted, they stopped. Eric's nose was bleeding. Dylan's hand was injured by a ricocheting bullet. They took a last look at the extent of the massacre before heading back to the library at 12. They shot themselves, Dylan in the left temple and Eric in the mouth, the collapse next to each other. There was silence, frightening and icy. No one dared to move from their hiding place, not even Twitch. The first rescue team accompanied by police officers penetrated the school at 1300 hours. They raided all the rooms, class by class, starting with the ground floor and ending up with the upper floors and the roof, where most of the victims were found. Then the policemen found the lifeless bodies of two killers in the library, as well as Patty Nielsen and many scared students, more dead than alive, under the tables. The director, Frank DeAngelis, was found in his office, without a scratch, but in a state of shock. The door of his office had been riddled with bullets. The professor, Dave Sanders, died from hemorrhage due to the wound in his back. On that fateful day of 20 April 1999, the parade of ambulances and the police car sirens continued throughout the day. The reunion of the survivors of the massacre with their parents was immortalized by the world's television cameras. That evening, Columbine High School was placed under seal and declared a crime scene. All of America was shocked with this news. Dylan and Eric had killed a combine of total 13 and caused serious injury to 24 others. Never before had a massacre of this magnitude taken place in an American school. A memorial to the victims was erected outside the Columbine High School two months after the massacre. Among them were teacher Dave Sanders, 47 years old, at the time of his death, and students Rachel Scott, Kyle Velasquez, Matthew Ketcher, and John Tomlin, to name a few. All were aged between 15 and 18 years old. The motives of Dylan and Eric were investigated at length by Colorado State Police Department. Their diaries, videos of their short films were seized and made public shortly after the massacre. According to the investigators, the harassment and humiliation suffered by Clay Bold and Harris during their four years at Columbine remained a major reason for their actions. Brooks Brown, Dylan's former childhood friend, said killing high school students was easier for them than finding their place in the high school. Robin Anderson, the friend of Dylan's, who was responsible for acquiring the weapons, was never pursued by the justice system. This tragedy, which severely shook the United States, will ensure that the security system in the elementary and secondary schools is greatly strengthened, notably through the use of metal detectors and the tracking of personal identification codes. Since the Columbine tragedy, the American Democratic Party has not stopped putting the subject of firearms possession back on the table. The ex-president Barack Obama, too, had more than once raised the issue. Without getting a favorable response, since then, the law has remained unchanged and many people in the United States still say that they are in favor of the free circulation of weapons for their own use. Columbine has since entered into popular culture and has been subject of several cinematic and literary adaptions. Some of the survivors of the massacre have also written books about the subject. The Clebold family moved to New York immediately after the tragedy and now live under an assumed name. The Harris family have returned to Kansas. Columbine High School was completely renovated a year after the massacre. A new cafeteria and a new library in particular were built. The sites of the old cafeteria and the old library have been transformed into a commemorative memorial. Frank DeAngelis continued to be the headmaster and Patty Nielsen also continued to teach art at the school. We're at the end of our show for today. 
so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.